You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. I am super excited tonight. I have a fantastic guest. I have Dr. Kyle Summers, who has done some very, very extensive studies and research into many species of frogs and dart frogs in particular. And um, we're limited on time, but I want to get into as much as possible because I'm really happy to have him on the show. But um, before we get into that, just really, really quick, uh, for everything in the podcast, check out the link tree. I've got links to the merch store. I've got links to the Patreon page if you want to support the show by becoming a patron. I also have a link to in situ ecosystems vivariums if you want to get a 10% off discount just for being a listener. Follow that link. And you'll also find a link in the link tree to support Panamanian frog conservation. Uh, follow that link if you'd like to make a donation to Panamanian frog conservation. And uh, other than that, I want to just, I don't want to waste any time because time is short here, but um, Dr. Kyle Summers, thank you for taking the time to join me tonight. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm really happy that we uh, we, we got to talk. And um, I know you mentioned you're going to Costa Rica soon, right? Yeah, I'm going to a meeting. Uh, the animal behavior meetings are in Costa Rica, which is, is unusual. I mean, it's unusual for it to be in such a great place. So <laughs> we took advantage. And yeah. my wife and I are, are both going to give talks. And uh, we'll have a about a week after the meetings to just do a little traveling. I can't imagine anyone taking issue with a trip to Costa Rica. It's... Uh... Always been a fantasy of mine to go there. Yeah, it's a great place. I have actually worked there long ago uh, in Corcovado. I noticed in one of your questions you brought that up, but uh, um, the uh, that it is an amazing. I mean, Corcovado is one of the most amazing places I've worked, and I've worked in a lot. <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of questions around that, but first, I, I'd like to just cover a little bit about you because you've got quite a long career studying frogs. Do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, though? What were your earliest experiences with amphibians like and what ultimately led you to where you are today? Sure, yeah. I, um, when I was a kid, I, I, I really loved uh, amphibians and reptiles, and I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, I, just, I think a lot of kids, you, you know, um, like amphibians and reptiles. Um, but, I, yeah, I was obsessed with them. And, and it was weird because I grew up in New York City, so <laughs> there weren't a whole lot of them just kind of hanging out on the street. But uh, I would uh, um, see them in the pet store, of course. And I had a friend up in upstate New York. And and so uh, when I would go up there, I would, I would see some um, amphibians and reptiles in the wild. But, yeah, it was odd because I, I didn't really you know, have them in my immediate environment most of the time. But... Just really loved them. And then, um, but I didn't, it wasn't something where, you know, I wasn't one of these kids who like loved them as a kid and then, you know, knew from from then on I was going to grow up to be a biologist and study amphibians and reptiles. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I actually wandered around for years in my first few years of college having no idea what I was going to do. And uh, I ended up kind of taking a biology class as part of a different major that I was pursuing, which, um, uh, was outdoor education, which, you know, was kind of a useless major. And I finally sort of realized that. Um, but I did take this biology course and it, it was fascinating. What really fascinated me was actually evolution, evolutionary biology. So I was, uh, my real, my real sort of what hooked me into my career and being an evolutionary biologist was a course in evolution. But once I went to grad school, um, or actually even as an undergrad, um, I realized that I could sort of combine my 
love of amphibians and reptiles with biology because you know there's lots of interesting biological and evolutionary questions you're going to ask about amphibians and reptiles so that those two things kind of came together but it wasn't like i you know knew from when i was a toddler that i was going to be a herpetologist or anything it's interesting because that's not i hear that answer quite often actually especially from people in the scientific community that they just sort of I guess just life's path just takes you in different directions. And I had a lot of people who started off studying um, like microbiology or birds or something like that. And then somehow they, they found the frog niche and they just uh, never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that does happen a lot. I mean, it goes both ways. I, I know people have started on frogs and gotten into microbiology. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I am actually neck deep in microbiology myself right now for, our, for a project that we're doing on frog microbiomes, but um, which I never expected to get involved with. But basically everybody and their brother-in-law is working on microbiomes. Now, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a field that's in very high demand, especially in, in today's day and age. But um, I, I know people who have who started out and said, hey, look, I, I wanted to be a microbiologist for the, the steady income and, and the, the, um, the, the comfort of not having to travel and whatnot. And then that went out the window. But it's it's still a very interesting field. Yeah, I mean, uh, microbiome, microbiology, and frogs. You know, they're they're sort of inextricably entwined now with the chytrid. I mean, the chytrid is an entire you know, it's basically an entire field of science at this point. And um, so there's a lot of people who you know work on frogs from a microbiological perspective. I could do a whole podcast on chytrid. Um, well, you know what. You, well, while we're talking about a, like a large scope of work, you have a blog, Dendrophiles, and I was, you know, b- before I reached out to you, I was, I found your blog, and I, I wish I would have found it sooner because it's, it's absolutely amazing. There's a tremendous amount of information on there. What was your reasoning for, for starting a blog? And you, you basically chronicled a lot of your findings going back into the '80s. Why start a blog like that? What was the, what was the goal that you were looking to accomplish? Um. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I think I sort of felt like I wanted. I mean, you know, part of being a uh, professor is you want to attract students who are interested in working on the kinds of things that you work on, and uh, and so the, I think you know the easiest way to sort of communicate that these days, uh, you know, the age of the internet is to have your information out there on the net, and so for me it was sort of about you know having um, my interests and and credentials and and uh, um, you know previous work available to people who might be interested in coming and working with me or and also to i mean in some ways it's it's a, a bit of um you know bragging about what you've done before but but it's it's you know this in the age of the internet it is the, the way that um people get put themselves out there and put them, you know, to, to other scientists and you know, people who they might want to collaborate with or students who might want to come work with them and that kind of thing. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the, um, the main professional outlet for, for one's um, work these days. Um, I mean, it's publication of course is important as well, but, um, but it's not as easily accessible to people as, as just having a website and you know you can um that can be an easy way for for students and potential collaborators to kind of 
get a, a sense of what you're doing and whether they might be interested in in coming to study with you or collaborate with you. Yeah, it was it was very um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like very very candid. You had a very very um, relatable experiences that were shared in the different entries, and you had entries for uh, different regions of South America. And one of them that really I, I found to be interesting was the um, the literal hands-on experience you had with the Phyllobates vitatus in uh, it's, it's Corcovado National Park, right in Costa Rica. You, you had... yeah, that was in Corcovado. Yeah, I mean. It... You know, it wasn't like the Phyllobates vitatus. Um, you know, it doesn't have the kind of extreme levels of phytotoxin that you find in, in you know the big Phyllobates terribilis, which is the most toxic thing on the planet, basically. But uh, uh, and you hear stories about them. I mean, you have you hear stories about people like having them land on their wrist and then passing out and waking up in the hospital and these kinds of things. And, uh, but these are these frogs, you know, they're not like that, but they do have very small amounts of the trichotoxin. Um, and uh, the trichotoxin is this, you know, uh, incredibly potent uh, neurotoxin, toxic alkaloid. Um, and so I had been working with, you know, I worked with them, I was working on their behavior, and you'd have to handle them and like take a toe and mark them and, and, uh, you know, I was doing this on a daily basis and usually it was fine. But so one day I just, uh, I didn't notice it, but I had a small cut on one of my fingers and <laughs> handling this frog and noticed my fingers started to hurt, you know, sort of throb and I was like, Oh, you know, I may have gotten a little drink in and, and of course, uh, that could be fatal if, if it was too much, but, um, I washed, you know, washed my hands really well and just waited and, and my whole hand and then my arm started to throb um, just to happen over a sort of period of, of hours. And then for the next several days, I just felt really lousy um, and my arm continued to hurt. And, and um, I decided to go, I was in, I mean, Corvado is quite isolated, but you can fly in and some tourists had flown in on one of these little, um, you know, tiny planes and there's a little landing field there and uh, <laughs> they left, they were leaving and I begged them to, to take me back to San Jose, which is the main city, uh, to, so I could you know, have a doctor, see a doctor and um, have a doctor check this out. In some ways, I'm not sure what I expected because there isn't actually any cure for trichotoxin poisoning. So, so if it wasn't a trichotoxin, uh, uh, probably in big trouble. But, um, but I went, I flew to San Jose, went to the doctor, and they did some tests. I told them about the frogs, and um, they were sort of nonplussed because it, you know, it's not like the everyday thing where you find somebody poisoned by a frog. Uh, but they took did a bunch of blood tests, and it, it turned out that I that I happened to have. Um, this um, had a, um, a parasite, which was a um, which I'd presumably gotten from from the food or drinking of water or something. It's not the most hygienic place, um, but it was a parasite. It was made of dysentery, actually, which is not that uncommon for travelers in, in the tropics. And that's why that's why I was feeling so lousy. So the, my arm stopped hurting after a few days, and and. Uh, even though I felt lousy, it turned out to be 
from this parasite. And uh, so I, I was actually overjoyed when they sort of gave me the news that I was infected by this parasite. It's probably the first time that you know, anyone had ever like reacted like that when they said, oh yeah, from the practitioner. Like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just picturing that conversation now. That I mean, I, I I'm, I, it just, it's, it's. I know that obviously, I don't, I don't. Bad things happen to me, and obviously, I, I'm not going to Corcovado anytime soon, and I'm not handling a wild phylobates fatatus. But I, I, I could just picture that happen to me or anybody else in the Darfrog world. You, you get zapped by a, a really, really hot frog like anything in the phylobates genus, and, and you're happy to hear that you have one of the worst tropical diseases instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I for I mean, just for the, 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 the main topic of tonight, I mean, that's a great story, but I, um, I wanted to get into it. I get a lot of listener questions about Ranatomea, and I've had other people kind of outside the frog world ask me questions about mimicry, and um, uh, apos- uh, apos- I always struggle to pronounce it, aposematism. Apos- oh, man, I'm terrible with that. Um, that was it. Apos- yeah, I try. I try. A lot of these words I never have in, in casual conversations, so I always I go to pronounce them out loud, and I don't know if anybody knows how to pronounce them. But um, in any event, uh, aposematism, mimicry, they're all evolved traits that ideally enhance a species' survival. And Interestingly enough, we see both traits occurring in, in various Ranatomea species. If you can, just start by defining what those two terms are. And in particular, we want to make the distinction of, of the mimicry being a, a Malarian mimicry. Can you just kind of walk us through what those terms are and how they relate to Ranatomea? Yeah, so, I mean, aposematism refers to a uh, warning signal. And usually, you know, people are talking about warning coloration i mean there are it could you know it could be something else it could be smell or it could be a noise but uh um usually you know people are talking about bright coloration where the animal is thought to be advertising to potential predators that might be tempted to try and eat it that you know that don't eat me i'm i'm highly toxic i'm defended and again it's usually chemical toxins that we're talking about there are other forms of defense that can be advertised but but usually when we talk about amphosomatism, we're talking about bright colors that advertise some kind of chemical defense. And that, of course, applies to many amphibians and the poison frogs are a famous example of that. They are, um, you know, many, they're, they're, many of the dendrobates are brightly colored and, and have these, these alkaloid toxins, which, um, you know, are, um, will make you sick if you can, consume them. And so, you know, predators generally avoid them. So aposematism is warning coloration. Um, mimicry uh, is, has kind of evolved where one species will evolve to kind of take advantage of the warning coloration produced by another species. But there's two, well, there's actually multiple kinds of mimicry, but there's two main kinds that are discussed. One is called Batesian mimicry, named after William Bates. Um, discovered it and and his and his in this version you have like a brightly colored species that is mimicked by a species that isn't toxic that that doesn't actually have like a chemical defense and so they're they're basically cheaters they are you know pretending to be a toxic species when they're not and and so you know um the predators will avoid them but 
actually, if the predator actually caught one and ate it, it would actually get a good meal without any toxins. Malaria mimicry is different um, in that both the mimic and the model, or sometimes they're called co-models, um, which look like each other, they're both getting a benefit. They're both actually, it's a kind of mutualism. And the way it works is that um, what, what Muller argued, and this was actually one of the first mathematical arguments or mathematical models ever developed in, in ecology was, um, he argued that predators are going to have to sample, you know, they see this brightly colored organism, they, they try, you know, they, they attack it, they get a mouthful of poison and then they learn, you know, oh no, you don't want to eat those. Anything that looks like that, I don't want to eat. So you can imagine a situation where let's say you have a bunch of blue frogs and a bunch, you know, a, a species of frogs that are blue and they're toxic and a species that are red that are toxic. And his argument was, all right, um, if they're different colors, then the predator will has to try a blue species, get a mouthful of toxin, learn, oh, I don't want to eat anything that looks like that. And then for the red species, it has to do the same again. And so the 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 frogs, both the red frogs and the blue frogs are suffering a cost because they're being attacked by this predator. But if they all look blue, then the predator only has to, you know, attack one out of both species to get the mouthful of toxin and learn to avoid that color. Or if they're all red, it doesn't matter whether they're blue or red, just as long as they're all the same color, then the the basically the burden of teaching the predator to avoid that particular color pattern is lower for both the blue, what were originally blue and red frogs. So that's why they evolved to look the same. They, they adopt the same color pattern. And it, it, it provides a benefit to members of both species. As far as Ranatomea goes, and this has always been one of the things that I've always had the hardest time explaining to people, is what benefit does it serve for a poisonous frog to mimic another poisonous frog like is there one well, of the that's what that that is the malaria so that's what i was just saying so you know imagine the uh remitomea um uh, imagine a species of remitomea that's striped and it lives in a particular environment and then another remitomea or another similar looking frog comes into that area and it's spotted so now you know, originally predators learned to avoid the striped frog. The spotted frog comes in, and the predators haven't learned to avoid it. So um, that spotted that spotted pattern is at a disadvantage because predators are going to not view it as as toxic, and they'll just they'll attack individuals that have that pattern. But individuals in the spotted species then start to look more striped, more like the striped. Um, version that predators are already, already avoiding are going to have an advantage. So the by looking like other poisonous animals, they are less likely to be attacked by the predators in that area. I've heard um, some mentions that the imitators are less toxic than the species that they mimic. 
Really? Have you heard that? Because that's the exact opposite of what we found when we published on that. We have a 2014 paper where we proved the exact opposite of that. Okay. Well, then you. Know, I could be completely wrong. I just I've 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 heard. Yeah, in this particular case. Okay. <laughs> then I, I I bow out respectfully. I just well that was what I was going to ask. Was I was curious about the 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 genetic fitness of of the mimic versus the original species. Um, again, I had just, just to make myself sound a little bit less, a little bit less uninformed, uh, I had heard from a source, which I I can't recall, that makes me sound even more stupid, but that, um, there was some sort of a takeaway, meaning by mimicking another species, you would, um, produce less toxins because it would, mimicking would have increased your fitness to the point where you didn't need that excess toxin. But you tell me, you were there. there, there I mean, that's, there is some research on a completely different group of poison frogs where they have suggested that kind of trade-off. We, had, we didn't find evidence for that in any demand, but um, uh, David Canatella and Molly Cummings, I think, and uh, their student, uh, whose name is uh, escaping me right now, Catherine, somebody, um, did a study where they found, what they think they found that kind of trade-off. That was an actually species of uh, what was it, epipetabates, I think, or, uh, um, or, um, or no, not epipetabates, it's um, probably amorega. Uh, I don't remember the paper exactly, but that they found that, uh, some kind of, a bit of evidence for that kind of trade-off. I'm not sure that's, that that's held up in other studies, but uh, it, it may have, I'm not sure. I'm really intrigued now because that completely reverses everything that I, I, I thought. So, so the, the mimics are actually more toxic then. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean it's not dramatic. So they're, I mean, they're de- so you know, we, the the original question we went in with was, are imitator less toxic? And they're definitely not. You know, less. There's one. So there are different morphs of imitator that mimic different different species. And there was one case where they the the morph. The one morph of imitator was slightly less toxic than the um, than the species it was mimicking, but in most cases it turned out to be more. It had more toxins and a higher diversity of toxins in most cases where a specific morph was with a specific species, a model species. How long does that take? I mean, evolution. It took a long time. It was Adam Stukert uh, did that first thesis, and he uh, uh, he collected. Uh, Actually, that was for his master's thesis, but he collected um, a bunch of different frogs all over uh, San Martin province since, and, um, and part of Laredo province in Peru. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, he's a hardcore jungle enthusiast, so <laughs> he's out there quite a while. Um, I've had some students who are just very keen on field work, um, Adam being one, uh, and, and uh, Evan Toomey being another, and then Jason Brown, who's at uh, Southern Illinois, being another. So are we talking like millions of years here, or a shorter period? A few million years is, uh, I think that is um, in the ballpark of what we, um, of, uh, how long they've been diverging. I see. And, and that lends that kind of leads into my next question, and this is one of the things that I, I kind of took from some of your research. It was the term um, incipient speciation and how it's driven by mimicry. So, 
are we seeing substantial genetic, I mean, is divergence the right word, uh, occurring among various Ranatomaeus species, meaning are they, are they becoming new species as it's driven by mimicry? Yeah, so um, actually that was um, a project, so something that Evan Toomey worked on and for his thesis work, and he found that um, one of the morphs, um, this morph we call the Varadero morph because it's near a village called Varadero, um, it has a kind of a complex pattern, so it's not like spotted or striped, it's kind of a mix, but uh, um, that in that case, it does appear, so we f find a genetic discon discontinuity between that morph and the other morph, so there doesn't seem to be, I mean, it, there seems to be like a, a break where there's not, no gene flow between that population or that morph and the the near the next i mean it's 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 nearby it's near to a place where the straight morph exists so it's basically there's a kind of very um brief contact zone where the two kind of come into contact but they but they're separate and they there seems to be a genetic discontinuity so they seem to be not interbreeding but um there there seems to be little or no interbreeding going on um, Evan did um, kind of reproductive isolation tests, behavioral tests, where he looked at uh, preferences, mating preferences, and he found that the females, uh, sorry, the, um, the, the males of the uh, straight morph prefer females of their own morph rather than the other morph. So there's some, some behavioral reproductive isolation going on. And of course, they look very different. And so those are all elements that suggest that the uh, this veridoromorph may actually be sort of an incipient case of a new species forming, and uh, there's more. I mean, there's more work to be done on that. But uh, but Evan got some really um, very uh, intriguing results that suggest that that is what's going on, and um, that part of his thesis was published in uh, uh, journal Nature Communications, which is a fairly high-ranking journal. And so um, uh, anyway, that that is um, something that we, we do have some evidence for. I wouldn't call it cut and dry, but it's certainly, uh, we certainly have some in intriguing results in that regard. Another question that, that I hear people ask and something that comes up is the uh, effect that geography and natural barriers has on, um, I guess, isolating a group of individuals where they, they sort of, um, I guess, evolve a different color form or whatever. Do geography and natural barriers, are they catalysts for variation in Ranatomea and other genera of uh, dart frogs? We have some evidence from some recent genomic work that, um, that so there's a what we call a transition zone between a striped morph, which is kind of in the lowlands, and then as you go along this river, the Wyaga River, um, there's an intermediate morph, and then um, as you get towards the mountains, um, you find this banded morph. And so there's this transition morph where you get morphs that are intermediate, where they look like a kind of mix 
of the striped and banded morphs. And, and we've looked, we've done some genomic analyses where we can show that there's gene flow all along that transcript, which runs along the river, but it crosses the river at one point. And we can show that there is a kind of gap there. So that there's, there's still gene flow. I mean, there still has been gene flow, but it's reduced. So there's kind of a disconnect. There's lower gene flow between the, the, these intermediate populations on both sides of the Wyaga River. The Wyaga River is quite a large river. And, you know, the idea of this small frog getting across it, you think, well, how, how on earth could it you know, get from one side to the other? Um, but what happens in the Amazon um, that makes these rivers sometimes less of a barrier is that the, the channel changes course. So the river, the river, you know, will be flowing in one channel and then switch course. And so it will actually connect populations that were disconnected across the, the river. So, so in, in some cases, even for amphibians, which aren't, you know, notoriously um, able to swim across rivers, you still see gene flow from one side of a river to another because of those kinds of events. But nevertheless, in the, in the case of an imitator, we, we do see that the river does provide somewhat of a barrier to gene flow. There's less gene flow across the river than there is along the sides of the river. But um, so it's a matter of there is there is some effect, but it's not it's not absolute. It's not like once they get to the other side of the river, they they can never be reconnected. That doesn't seem to be the case. There does seem to be some possibility of gene flow. And of course, as we've been discussing, this is happening over long periods of time, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. So, um, you know, when you think of like when, you know, in, our, in, your, in your lifetime or my lifetime, we're not, you could, you could go back to the Wyaga River every, every day for the rest of your life and it's not going to suddenly change its, its channel. But, but over thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, it does actually change. So it would be more like a, I guess, like a, a gradient of genetic yeah. information rather than an, an, like an abrupt stop, meaning it's not yeah, just going to stop at a river. Like okay. it's a, it, it's, it completely disconnects them, but it does, it can reduce levels of gene flow. And one of the things that I've also been curious about, and this is something that I've heard from people who've seen this in situ, not with Ranitomea, but with, with Dendrobates, Azurius, and other um, I guess I guess other color morphs of 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 Tinctorius, that they they don't actually interbreed even though they occupy the same geographic area. How do these species know not to interbreed, especially since some of them look so incredibly similar to one another? Um, well, and yeah, Renitame. I mean, with the mimics, of course, yeah, they they look you know. Almost identical but they have different calls and probably for these frogs you know i mean it's like you know coming home to your house and seeing somebody named frank instead of paul you know, my husband is paul 
his name is Frank. It's a different person. So probably for these frogs, it's like, okay, that's not Frank. <laughs> I mean, once they hear that completely different call, it's like, no, that's not my species. So I imagine it's not too hard for them, but uh, yeah, I could be wrong. But they seem to do okay in terms of not interbreeding with the wrong species. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess like I, you know, I, I'd recommend, I'd recommend, I, I would recall my wife's voice calling me from up the driveway. <laughs> it's funny because we, you know what it's, I think that we, we consider things from such a visual perspective as, as right, human beings right. that we forget that there's other means of, of communication that might even be way more sophisticated in dart frogs yeah. than, than our sense of vision. It's just, it's funny. It's one of those things that it, on its face, it seems so simple when you say it out loud, but it's just so hard to comprehend. Yeah, they, I mean these these frogs. I you know I mean it, it's um, like you say they have many other modalities that they can. I'm sure if they like if they they probably you know they can like if they get right up to another individual, they're going to you know have a sense of smell. They're going to uh, sense of touch and taste. I mean those things may all be very different from their perspective. And so um, yeah, I don't you know I think they they're probably you know, not making errors in that, in that regard too often. Another thing I found in your research that interested me was uh, in a, in a 2010 paper, and I, I apologize, I didn't have time to read the paper, but you discuss monogamy in Ranatomea imitator. And I'm curious because there's a lot of very, very sophisticated parental uh, care aspects in, in all different dendrobatids, but can you run us through how monogamy and parental care evolved in dart frogs and like what these behaviors might look like in, in Ranamatea? Excuse me, Ranatomeo. Um, yeah, I mean, this um, was work that uh, um, got started with uh, Jason Brown doing his thesis work. Um, and so we were interested in... in um, the idea that these frogs were um, mating monogamously, and he was observing pairs and you know finding that they stayed together, which was which is very unusual for frogs. And um, uh, so he uh, ended up you know looking at um, doing a genetic analysis of monogamy and found that uh, they showed high levels of monogamy. 11 out of 12 of the pairs that he looked at were monogamous. There was one male that was mating polygynously, but, but the vast majority were um, mating monogamously. And that, and so we were very interested in, you know, what, what is, I mean, monogamy is basically unheard of in, in amphibians. So um, in fact, as far as I know, it's the only example that exists, but, uh, um, other than possibly Vanzellinii, which is this, we think is the sister species to imitator. So it's probably the same, you know, I mean, it's pretty, it's the same clade essentially, but it's just um, two different species from that, from, from that common ancestor. But, uh, um, you know, we're very interested in what, what, could drive this and uh, particularly interested in ecological causes of monogamy. And the, obvious, the, the kind of obvious thing is, is the ability to use these very tiny pools and, and the requirement, if you're going to use those tiny pools, you have to 
invest really heavily in the offspring because they're not going to survive otherwise. And so um, the idea is that that's, you know, in using these really tiny pools, it gives it gives this um, it gives imitator an advantage because it can use pools that other frogs, even even phytotelm breeding frogs can't use because there's just not enough resources. Um, but by feeding the offspring eggs, um, it provides enough resources for them to survive in these really tiny pools where they, you know, basically don't have any food other than these fertile eggs, but the or infertile eggs, uh, trophic eggs. But um, but this requires fairly heavy duty investment on the part of both parents. And so what seems to have evolved is this kind of pair bonding where both parents essentially agree to, you know, continue visiting their a small number of offspring in, in pools in a co-defended territory. And, um, and so, you know, by committing to each other and to this shared task of caring for these offspring, they get the benefit of, of having very high offspring survival in these tiny, tiny pools that other species can't use. And so um, that's, I, that's kind of the gist of the idea. And um, uh, that, that was uh, published in that 2010 paper was published in the American Naturalist. And then they had another, um, another uh, um, student who also followed up on that uh, work, uh, James Tumulty, who did some really neat experiments as well. But uh, that's kind of the, the basic idea. Are there any other species in Ranatomea or other genera of dwarf frogs that are monogamous as well? Not that I know of other than Vanzelinii, which, as I mentioned, is in, uh, in the same clade. And we're not, we don't know... Benzelinii hasn't been studied as intensively as imitator, but um, there was some early work which was suggestive of monogamy and then um, pair bonding monogamy. Then, um, but it but uh, it hasn't been followed up with that species is in Brazil. It's a hard place. To, it's a hard species to get to the forest where it lives, and it's also hard to get permission to work there. And the the scientist who is working on it um, has retired, and so. Um, that's going to have to wait for future work. I've heard some interest in in Pamilio. Pamilio is definitely not monogamous. They do have they do have bipernal, but they have the males do a, a very minimal amount of parental care compared to imitator. So the males will tend the eggs, but they don't deal with they don't deal with feeding the offspring. They don't they don't go to the pools where the offspring are. They don't they don't mess with feeding offspring at all. That's all on the female, and she does it all on her own. Yeah, it was one of those things I was I was curious about because with Pamilio, like they they exhibit parental care, but I've I've always been curious, and I, I ask a lot of because I know a lot of people that keep different species of Ufaga, and I always ask, I say, hey, listen, did you ever have a, a you know a, a bonded pair that was really 100% monogamous? And I, I I haven't had anybody give me that, you know, I mean, obviously captive conditions is different, but. Uh, it's just one of those things I'm always I'm always curious about. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean I've studied uh, Pamelio in the wild, and they're about as far from monogamous as you can get. Um, yeah, they're they're not monogamous. All right. So then they go down a notch in terms of being the uh, the ideal. The ideal oh no, they're couple. fascinating. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean you know it, you got to pick your 
study organism for the question you're interested in, and, and Pamelio has been, you know, a model species of poison frog for all kinds of research. I mean, I've worked on it. Many other people have worked on it, and and it's yeah, it's, it's been a just a, um, a gold mine for for various kinds of research. But research on monogamy is not what you would want to pick Pamelio for. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're, we're we're kind of. I know you're. We're really short on time, but I I wanted to ask you one last question, and this is of course about the species that is named for you, Ranitomea summersi. Um, I know that this species was named in honor of you, and I know that there are other scientists who we mentioned. You mentioned to me before we started recording that worked on the project. But what can you tell us about the species um, that you've been uh, that you've been named after? Well, I I mean I I'm very grateful to Evan and Jason for for naming a species after me. It was very, very nice gesture. And um, um, so, yeah, that was a wonderful thing to do. I, and I, and I love that, that species. I mean, I, you know, I encountered it. Um, it was originally, you know, like many things, it was originally considered a, a different morph of, um, of another species. Uh, in this case, it was originally considered to be a, a morph of Renitomea fantastica. Um, but they found it to be different enough to describe it as a new species. And it's one that is really, it's like, it's just, it's basically, it's, it's, it's the banded morph. So it's the model for the banded morph of imitator. And it just, it just has these beautiful orange bands, um, you know, across the head and across the main part of the body. And, um, it's just a very beautiful species. So, um, you know, I, I'm very grateful to be, to have that species named after me and it's uh it was it was just a really nice thing to do um and uh yeah so i don't know what else to tell you i mean the, the species is is a cool species it has it it's very different in terms of its life history than imitator it, it uh, uh it's more like variabilis in terms of or it's actually more like fantaskin that it um it lives tends to be higher up in the in the canopy like it'll breed in bromeliads high up sometimes and um it has um uh, male only parental care they they don't it doesn't have pair bonding or anything like that but it but it is just a very cool looking frog i mean it's just one of the more beautiful morphs i think it's definitely a remarkable frog i've got that um I know a lot of people have this poster, the the Ranitomea poster. It's got all the different locales and uh, species of, of uh, Ranitomea. It's got a whole big section on imitator. It's it's really beautiful. Uh, I, I'm just curious, one, like one last question. And um, for people who keep Ranitomea as hobbyists in, in captivity, how much distinction between, uh, I'm trying to phrase this, um, like, how much variation in captive care would be needed to maintain many of the species of Ranitomea, or do you think that they could all be kept captively in the same way? Um, I mean, we're, you know, we keep, uh, in, my, in my lab, we keep um, Variabilis and Imitator, and it, yeah, it's pretty similar. I mean, um, there isn't really anything that we do that's that different between those two. Um, and, uh, you know, Fantastica is more, and Summer's Eye for that matter, is more sort of skittish and shy and, and really, really fast. 
So you just have to be very careful about, you know, opening the cage and things because they will shoot out of there. Um, but in terms of, you know, the setup of the tanks and stuff, I think you can do the same with any of the Rinchmea. Is it common to find multiple species of Ranatomea in the same area? I mean, you, you mentioned before, like like Summersai, you said, occupies a different habitat than other species. If you go into a specific area where, say, there's you know, multiple species or, or a broad area where there's multiple species, will you see them at different locations, like different levels of the canopy or the understory? I mean, do they stay separate or is there any kind of like casual interaction at all? Um, well, I certainly worked in areas where Variopolis and uh, and imitator come into contact regularly, and the you know the imitator pairs sort of set up little territories that that they defend pretty tightly, whereas the Variopolis seem to have broader territories and are not so not quite so you know sort of picky about other frogs going through their area, <laughs> less less kind of. Uh, proprietary or territorial is is there any competition between the two well i've certainly seen imitator chase away variabilis from their pools they don't like any other frogs you know putting tadpoles in their pools um so yeah in that sense i mean imitator will chase away um either other imitator or variabilis coming near near their pools or territory is that something that might be a threat to the other species' survival if it's getting outcompeted for resources by another? Well, I mean, the so variables are spreading their tadpoles more widely into pools, usually looking for larger pools than imitator uses. But sometimes, you know, they might try and put their tadpole in a pool that is a small pool with an imitator. And the variables tadpoles are much more cannibalistic than the imitator tadpoles. So basically from the parent's perspective, if you're an imitator parent, you don't want a variabilis tadpole in your pool with your imitator baby because your imitator baby's going to get eaten. Uh, and that's interesting. So it's almost like a little checks and balances uh, system. Right, right. Interesting. Well, I, I know we're at the end. I, I know you have to get going, um, Kyle, but um, I, just real quick, if anybody in, in the, my listeners want to find out more about your research and check out your blog, where can they go to find that information? Uh, the, well, the, um, the Dendrophiles is the name of the blog. I don't have the address in front of me, unfortunately. I'm, I, uh, um, I don't have the HTTP address handy. Um, but, uh, if you look up Kyle Summers dendrophiles, it should get you to the, I'm going to, I'm going to put a link to it in the show description as well. So oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I don't have that handy. Yeah. Sorry. And, um, I know that you're going off to Costa Rica, but, um, I mean, any idea, can you give us maybe a little hint of what you're, you're going to be looking at when you go there? Oh, this is for a meeting. So I'm oh, you're not going to, gonna... okay. So you're not yeah, going to, no, I'm not little... doing any, any, Field work. In fact, um, to be honest, I'm, I'm um, all my, my all the field work is done by my students at this point. <laughs> I'm getting old here, so, so uh, yeah, the students are have taken over the field field work part of my research. 
Well, they're lucky to have you as a mentor. I mean, I just I, I, mean, I come, I, I get to come check them out, check out what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, just 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 for everybody out there listening, I I, I know we're we're short on time, and there's a lot I would have I would have loved to cover. But if you go to to Dr. Summer's blog, Dendrophiles, the the amount of information on there is immense. I mean, and not even so much like Ranitomea, but other other species. Like you, you did a little write up on wild Lucamellus that you saw in the eighties and um, other non-dendrobatid species. So I encourage everybody listening, go and look at, follow the link that I put in the description, look look at the Dendrophiles blog. It's really, really, really fascinating. And um, you've got um, you've got some other stuff on there that's, that's pretty cool too. But um, I mean, I, I, look, I, I saw it and I really enjoyed it. So again, anybody out there who's listening, be sure to go check it out after you, uh, after you finish listening. Well, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I, I need to update that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I yeah. Well, I mean, again, listen. I I know we, we only had an hour to talk, but I I want to thank you so much for taking the time and and a lot of the stuff that I thought was uh, you know a certain way. I, I want to thank you for uh, enlightening me, uh, especially about the issue with um, Ranitomea, uh mimics and the the. the Toxicity oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. I mean, we were we were surprised too. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Hey, look, it's it's a learning process. This is why I have people on the show is to clarify stuff like that. But um, yeah, that was that was that was an interesting takeaway. So all right, all right, everyone. I want to thank uh, Dr. Kyle Summers for taking the time to to talk to us about Ranitomea in the wild and mimicry and whatnot. And I, I hope you guys enjoy the Ranitomea co- uh, content. I've been trying to get as much of it out there as I can. And um, having Dr. Summers on was a, was a great start. So um, yeah, keep an eye out for that, or not an eye actually, but I say keep an ear open for that in the future because I'm hoping to have some more Ranitomea content. And other than that, this was a great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon. <laughs>